This upcoming trip to the Cherokee Reservation is actually going to be my eighth one in the last ten years. Um, probably one of the most vivid memories, though, of all those trips was the first one. Uh, something that happened in the course of that with a conversation with a dear lady by the name of Ruby. Um, Ruby was uh, nearly blind, uh, diabetic. Uh, her health was as wrecked as her house. Um, after some number of days of a, a lot of hard elbow grease on this team that we were with and, um, and the cleaning that we were doing there in that house and the painting that we were doing in that house, Ruby began to open up a bit and uh, she asked me this question. She asked, among others, um, are, are, Indians, are Indians actually part of the lost tribes of Israel? Now, you might be snickering at that. That's actually an idea that's been kicked around in some circles for years, centuries, actually, in different, in different corners. Um, absolutely refuted, by the way, by DNA testing. Um, but, but nonetheless, it's something that, that circulates. And, and uh, so I, I heard this, and I uh, just sat down with her, and we began to dialogue a little bit. And then I said, Ruby, where, where did you hear this? And, and she said, well, some Mormon missionaries that visited uh, here not long ago. I said, ah, well, there you go. Um, yeah, my point in bringing this up is this. It's, it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing not knowing how you got to where you are. It's a sad thing not knowing how you got to where you are. And I mean that not just geographically, but spiritually. It's a sad thing not knowing how you got to, to where you are. And Jesus would have us to have clarity on this point. And so we come to our text here in Matthew 13. Now, if you've got a Bible with you, that's where I'd ask you to, to turn. Matthew chapter 13, pressing on in this series of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, that's the first of the four Gospels, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are in Matthew 13 where we began uh, in that chapter last week. Uh, we're actually going to read the exact same passage that we did last week. Let me explain why. Um, verses 1 through 23. I explained last week that you know verses uh, 1 through uh, 9 are what is referred to as the parable of the soil or the parable of the sower. And then you have verses 10 through 17. That's kind of part 2. Uh, it's this excursus that Jesus gives on why he teaches in parables in the first place. And then you pick up again in verses 18 to 23, and he explains what he means by the parable of the soil or the, or, or the sower. Last week, we looked at parts 1 and 3, the parable and then the explanation of the parable. And I promised, hopefully, we would be able to come back to part 2 and delve into what about the backdrop behind all of that in terms of why he teaches in parables in the first place. And that's what I'd like for us to, to look into now. So, we're going to be honing in on verses 10 through 17, but I want to go ahead and again read verses 1 through 23, because it has some bearing on, on, the, the, on the full orb understanding of what he's actually saying here. So, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. 
Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Well, let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, we, as we prayed last week, we ask that you would place us there on that shoreline, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear you. The press of the crowd so great, you're having to get out from amidst the, the, that press and into a, a boat to stand so that people could hear and see you. And there you taught. And here we have the, the very words of what you taught. And the opportunity here before us this morning to, to delve into that, to, to listen to that, to explore that, to have... Uh, a time where we could grow in our own understanding of some significant issues. We ask that you would do that. And in particular, we ask that you would show us how we got to where we are. Wherever that may be, we ask that you would show us how we got to, to where we are. In your name we pray. Amen. There are layers of reasons as to why we do the things that we do. There are layers upon layers upon layers as to why we do the things that we do. There are a chorus of voices, a variety of different inputs, uh, a whole range of possibilities feeding into our responses to, to life. I'll just you know, speak of a, a classic uh, description of that, nature and nurture, right? You have nature, and you think in terms of genetics and personality and body chemistry and... Uh, Nutrition, frankly, as well. Sleep, you know, how well are you doing there? Nature, nurture, your family upbringing, 
uh, your, the culture of what, from which you have come, your environment, your education, your life experiences, all of that needs to be dialed in. It all factors into why we respond to things in the ways that we do. And I haven't even touched on the spiritual components, the, the affections of our hearts, what we're drawn and repelled by, um, the very real though unseen, very real forces at work in this world all around us all the time. All of that needs to be accounted for in terms of why we do the things that we do. There are layers, layers of reasons as to why we do the things that we do. So many, in fact, so complicated and so intertwined that it can be very difficult to parse them out, to figure out what led to this and what caused that and, and that sort of thing. But despite the difficulty, however hard if not in times even impossible, to discern all of that, we still need to be aware. We still need to be aware that there are a, a whole range of reasons as to why we respond to our circumstances the way that we do, why we respond to certain messages the way that we do, including the message of the gospel. There is a whole range of reasons multi-layered, in fact, as to why we respond to the message of the gospel as we do. A range of reasons. I think you could even say a, a reason beneath, behind all the reasons. And Jesus is speaking here, showing us here, why we respond to Him as we do. Jesus is speaking here in some profound ways as to why we respond to Him as we do. And we need to wrestle with the implications of His teaching. We need to wrestle with this, to hear what He is saying and to wrestle with this. Now, what would that look like? Well, at least these three things, and we're going to look at this progressively as we're moving through this text. And I would say this, they're in your outline. First, an examination. Secondly, an explanation. And thirdly, exaltation. Those three things in terms of what it would mean, what it would look like. Uh, an, an examination, an explanation, and an exaltation. So let's look at these in turn. First, the examination. And by that, I simply mean this. Why do we respond to him in the way that we do? It's the parable. It's, it's the story that he tells. The parable of the soil, the parable of the sower, however you want to call that. Now, that's what we delved into, as I said a moment ago, last week. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but I want to review it, re recap it really quickly so that we're, we're together on this, because it's pertinent to where, where we're going here this morning. There's a question hanging in the air, if, if you will. Jesus has made clear by his words and his works, uh, by uh, the things that he has said, the things that he has done, by his message and his miracles, he has made abundantly clear for those who will have but eyes to see and ears to hear his identity and his mission. And yet... The reception that he has received is at best in times ambivalent, if not outright hostile. And so there's this question that creates some tension in the minds of his followers. Why? How can this be, O Lord, if in fact you are the, the long-awaited king? How can it be that the people are responding to you in this way? It doesn't make any sense. And so that's the unspoken question. Jesus then speaks the answer into that unspoken question. And, he, by, and to do that, he, gives, he tells this story. He tells this 
parable. A parable is, is a, a, a story that has uh, some symbolism, points to things beyond itself. It was a common teaching technique of the time, very familiar to, to those who are familiar with rabbinical uh, teaching techniques. It was, it was um, well, in this case, Jesus uses an analogy, uh, word pictures from an, the agrarian society, a farm. A sower goes out to sow. Very simple. Very simple idea, very simple imagery. The lesson of all that being that the human heart is like soil. The human heart is like soil. And our response to Jesus, our response to the message of the gospel, is very much driven by our receptivity to him and that message. Our response is very much driven and governed by our receptivity to him. Now, we need to hear this. We need to hear this examination, if you will, that he's putting before us. We need to wrestle and grapple with this analysis that he is giving us here in this, this parable, this word picture, because nothing has changed. Nothing has changed at all in terms of that question, in terms of that tension, in terms of the responses. You have this timeless message of the king who has come, bringing in his kingdom, this one timeless message and these varied responses to him. Some respond by embracing it and experience life change slowly over the course of time. Others, however, disbelieve. It's a hardened response. Or it's a shallow response. Or it's a compromised and uh, distracted sort of response. Why is that? Jesus is explaining. He, he's not surprised. Let's put it this way. Jesus in no way is surprised by these various responses, and he would not have us to be either. And so he puts this story before us. He is showing us why we respond to him as we do. We need to wrestle with the implications of that. Now, but he then goes deeper. He then goes yet deeper so. So we move from examination to explanation. That takes us into verses 10 through, and I'll stop at verse 15. Then the disciples came. The idea is it seems that Jesus has told this parable, and now this is in a more private setting, not there on the shoreline. This is later, it would seem. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So the disciples, now at this point it's not an unspoken question. I mean, it's spoken, it's right out there. They ask this question, why do you teach? Why do you preach? Why do you do this in, in parables? And he gives the answer, and in so giving the answer, he gives them so much more than they were asking for, which is the way Jesus works in a lot of cases. He tells them so much more than just that surfacey sort of, well, it's a great teaching technique kind of answer. Three layers, I would argue, to why. Why 
he teaches in these parables. And we're going to go in increasing depth. First, it has to do with our receptivity. What I mean by that is, is this. It's a simple dynamic, right? The more you know about a certain thing, the more you're able to learn about that certain thing, right? The more you can take in, the more you can handle. You Once you've established the foundations, once you've established the basics, you can graduate on to more comprehensive and complex material, right? You got that. You, know, you take Spanish 1 before you take Spanish 4, or, or whatever the case may be. You take simple mathematics before you get into calculus, you know, that, that sort of thing. Well, it's something of that, something of that in verses 12 and 13, where Jesus says, to those who have, more will be given. To those who have not, what they have will be taken away. It's something of that. It's part, that's partly what he's saying there, but that is not all that he's saying there. There's a lot more going on here, and he makes that quite plain. You keep reading, we come to understand that it's not just our receptivity involved, it's also our responsibility, an accountability, a culpability, and even what you could call a judicial hardening. And that becomes abundantly clear there in verses 14 and 15, where you move on just from past verses 12 and 13, the have and the have not, and given and taken and all that, and you keep going to verses 14 and 15 where he's quoting there from Isaiah. And how for what, what he, you could see taking place in the hearts and lives of the people in Isaiah's day, in the time of the exile, is manifesting itself in full now here in Jesus' day in how the people are responding to him. You see, it, it's, they're responding with hardened hearts. Hardened, stubborn hearts. It's not just a failure. They tried hard but couldn't handle it. It's not just a failure to see and to hear. It's a refusal. A refusal to see and to hear that he is speaking of here. And with that, in response to, that hardened heart response comes what could be called a judicial hardening as a consequence of that. Because you will respond in such a hardened way to me, I will let you go. I will let you continue to grow in that in the hardening of your heart, giving you what you want, which is a terrifying thing, by the way, for the Lord to do that, to give us what we want. See, you keep reading, in essence, what Jesus is saying here. Why, Why do you teach in parables? Not just to reveal, but to conceal. This is hard for us to hear, I know that. But it's, what it's plainly what he's saying. Partly he teaches in these parables to reveal that those who have would grow in what they have. But partly also to conceal that those who have responded in that hardened way would have less than even what they have, which is a pronouncement of judgment. But it goes even further than that. It's not just our receptivity, and it's not just our responsibility, and our response and culpability and accountability and all of that, but clearly Jesus is speaking here, not just to man's accountability, but to God's sovereignty 
in why he teaches in parables, or if I can put it this way, going back to where we started, how we get to where we are, or how it is we come to be saved. Verse 11, which actually sets the tone for everything else that he says in, in the section that we're reading today. They ask the question, why do you speak to them in parables? He says it very plainly in verse 11. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now let that settle in. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Last week we talked about the fact how in the course of the parable, and he explains this, how with, with, though there are four types of soil, three are but one, ultimately of one type, one type of response, and one is over here by itself. Whether it's the, 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 the hardened response, or the shallow response, or the distracted response, ultimately those are all unfruitful responses. That's one type. And over here is the fruitful response. Jesus says, ultimately, there are but two types of responses to me, one or the other. And now he's showing us here that behind those fundamental responses is a fundamental reason for those responses. To some it has been given, and to some it has not. To some it has been given, and to some it is not. My friends, this is something we need to hear and to grapple and wrestle with, however hard it may be for us to do so. But this is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus' own words. We need to hear this, and I would add this, hold them together. Human accountability and divine sovereignty. We need to hold them together, as he clearly is in this text. And, by the way, throughout the Scriptures. Not exalting one over the other, depending on your personal preference or personality, but putting, holding both up equally high and willing to live with the tension. Now, sometimes these things are better caught than taught. So let me try and, and image this for you, if, if I may. Uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. All right? Yes, that's right. Children's fiction. That's what you thought. Go back and reread it for children of all ages. In the first volume, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy first show up in the land of Narnia, among other things, they discover these four thrones that are empty and, turns out, have been waiting for them. For them. You, you see, their choices, which they thought they had freely made, without any compulsion whatsoever, was actually the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. You see the two streams? The human accountability and divine sovereignty working at the same time. Keep reading. Next volume. Silver Chair. Excuse me. Prince Caspian. Sorry. Prince Caspian. Jill is trying to explain to Aslan, which, by the way, is never a good idea. to just. Let me give you some insight. Aslan. Jill is trying to explain to Aslan that the reason they are there is because they called to him. They, they called to him. 
And he replies, if he had not called them, they would not have called him. The initiative, Aslan explains, is all his. However much of it they think is theirs, the initiative is ultimately all his. This is the quote. This is what the mighty lion says. You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. It's both. Do you see? It's both at the same time. Now what do we do with this? Can I just suggest something very simple in terms of application? May we not try to be wiser than God? May we not try to be wiser than God. I alluded to this earlier. The biblical writers are perfectly willing and comfortable in living with those two seemingly contradictory things. Again and again, you read the Old and New Testament. This is this dynamic. I'll just read you one from the Old and one from the New. So keep your thumb in Matthew. Let's go to the first book, Genesis. First book, Genesis, last chapter, chapter 50. This is in the context of this uh, conflict between Joseph and his brothers, and it's been going on for quite some time. There's a lot going on there. Read it when you get home. Um, and uh, you get to the end of this, and still it's not quite settled. They're still feeling bad about what they did and, and coming to him. And he's responding now here in uh, verses 19 and 20, Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's both. Both streams at the same time. Or turn with me to the book of Acts. That's after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 2. This is in the context of Peter's sermon that he preaches uh, there on the day of Pentecost and the sending of the Holy Spirit, and he's explaining what it is that's going on here and the fulfillment of the prophecies and, and all that's entailed with that. And he says, picking up about midway in that sermon, uh, Acts 2, starting in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Human accountability, divine sovereignty. Ours is not to try to resolve this seeming tension that we can't seem to live with by downplaying one at the expense of the other. Ours is not to do that, but rather to hold both equally high as Jesus is perfectly willing to do. And what we can see here in Matthew 13. Jesus is showing us why we respond to him the ways that we do. We need to, again, I'll say, wrestle with the implications of this. Thirdly, moving from examination to explanation to exaltation. Verses 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So, we move now, rightly grappling, to the extent we are rightly grappling with this examination and this, this explanation 
we then have this call to praise and wonder. A call to gratitude and trust. Jesus gives us two reasons for this. Two reasons. The first being, the simple fact that we can see and hear any of this at all is a wonder. The simple fact that we can hear and see that it has been given, if you will, to us is, is, is a wonder. The, the contrast, when you see verse 16, you're, re, you're reading through this, this, this morning's passage, starting in verse 10, reading on through verse 17, but you hit verse 16 and there's just a stark contrast as you're reading. It's so the flow of thought has just been arrested, full stop, and redirected in a completely new well, direction. And the, the cause of that, the reason for that, the, 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 what's happened here is Jesus is speaking now, blessed are you. Blessed are you. With all of that, blessed are you, given, well, given that it's been given, given to you. You can see. You can hear. To you it has been given. And know this. This is implied in all of that. Know this. The only thing that makes you any different from those to whom it has not been given and therein cannot see and cannot hear is God's sovereign pleasure. His sovereign purpose and plan before the beginning of time. It is because of His determination, His mercy, His grace, not because of our deserving or merit or grit. It has absolutely nothing to do with you or me. It is completely His bestowing, His giving, His grace. Think about how that should affect how we see one another. How we look to the left, how we look to the right, how we look in the mirror. Knowing that, grappling with that, wrestling with that, the fact that we can see into here, and then what it is we can see in here. The substance of what it is that we can see here. Something, he's alluding to this here in verses 16 and 17, something that is, was long awaited. Ours, if, if, we, if we can see, if we can hear and know anything of this, ours is such a privileged position as he speaks to how others for ages past long to know long to see how the coming of the king and the kingdom would come about and what it would look like and to actually lay eyes on it and be there when it began to take place. And we see and we hear, verse 11, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, the secrets, the musterion, the mystery of the kingdom. Meaning, not that it was something as they thought it was going to just traumatically, dramatically break in and assert itself all at once, but rather something that was dawning. Something coming slowly and surely, even secretly. It's what these parables point us towards as you keep reading through Matthew 13. Shifting the paradigm is the understanding of what the kingdom was about. The understanding of that the mystery of the kingdom and the majesty of the king. That's what we have been given eyes and ears to see and to hear. 
And that is a marvel. That is a wonder. And call then exaltation. May Jesus be praised. Flowing out of that, let me just point two things. Point us towards two things that ought to be stirring within and growing within us to the degree that we're grappling with these things. One is certainty. Gospel certainty. It drives us to pray. It drives us to pray the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God should drive us to pray. Why? Because we know that the Almighty God has revealed Himself to us, even us, as our Father. And so we know we can come to Him with all boldness. Certainty in driving us to pray. Certainty in driving us to share our faith in evangelism. The goodness, the faithfulness, the sovereignty of God should give us certainty and boldness and assurance in the sharing of our faith. Why? Because we know, rock bottom, that our frailties and failures and bumbling attempts at doing so will never in any way whatsoever frustrate His eternal purposes. They can't. And so you're free. Free to say what needs to be said as gently as it needs to be said and love people well and to come alongside and know that your frailties and failures are never going to get in the way. But rather... Rather, the Lord and the wonder of His purposes and plans is actually going to take those things in His hand and use them. Just as He intended to from the start. You see, His sovereignty does not negate the place of prayer or evangelism. It establishes it. It energizes it. It fuels it. It makes it possible. Why pray if God is not sovereign? If he can't do anything, why bother? If he can't change somebody's heart, why bother? Oh, but he does here, and he does work. Certainty, that's the first thing. Humility, that's the second. Boldness without boasting because we've brought nothing to this table. Absolutely, positively nothing. It has been what? Earned? Is that what verse 11 says? Given. Given. Ours can only then be a response of glad, grateful wonder that we can see, that we can hear to whom, to, to us, it has been given. Even to us. Despite us, it has been given. He's showing us why we respond to him in the deepest ways, profound ways, why we respond to him as we do. We need to wrestle with these implications. Okay, let me land this plane. This past week we celebrated Independence Day, July 4th. A few fireworks? One or two? Yeah. Oh, a thousand. Thank you. Yeah. Um, some of us are celebrating the end of the week, no doubt. Um, so, and of course, with all of that, a call to think back and to reflect on the unique history of this nation and its unique place, and you could argue responsibilities and privileges of being a citizen of this nation. So I just kind of got to thinking, and I, I looked up on the USCIS. You know what that is? I didn't know it either. The United States Citizenship and Immigration Service webpage, 
in a little document called The Guide to Naturalization. And there they list the privileges of citizenship. I'll just read to you a few of these. There we read that part of it is to vote, to bring family members to the United States, to obtain citizenship for children born abroad, travel with a U.S. passport, become eligible for federal jobs, become an elected official, and to show your patriotism. Now here's the thing. All of those benefits, privileges, are yours uh, as a citizen of this nation, whether you appreciate how they came about or not. Whether you have any sense whatsoever about the rich heritage and history of this land, those privileges and benefits are yours nonetheless. But if you do have an, any sense of appreciation of the heritage and the history and how it is that you actually have the privileges and benefits of citizenship that you have, therein your experience as a citizen of this nation is deepened and enriched. What does that have to do with Matthew 13? It has everything to do with Matthew 13. Because here Jesus is showing us how we got to where we are. Jesus is showing us here uh, why it is that we respond to him as we do. He's showing us the reason behind the reason, the deeper story behind the parable, why it is, how it can be that we could hear, that we could see, that it could be given to us. And you may not know that and still have the privilege of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. But to the degree that you do know that and are growing in that, the experience and confidence and assurance and joy of being a member, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is enriched all the more. And Jesus is trying to show us, oh, that we would have ears to hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we join with the Apostle Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For, Lord, to you, from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever and ever. Your wisdom and your purposes are beyond tracing. Your faithfulness and love beyond anything we've ever experienced. Paul, grappling with all of his brilliance and his training, his calling as an apostle, comes to this point of the doxology, wonder and praise and awe and trust. Oh, may that be our response. You are showing us here in your word why it is that we respond as we do unto you, and we ask that you'd help us to hear. Dig ears that we would hear. In your name we pray. Amen.